irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. You're listening to Answers for the Family with Alan Cardoza, right here on LA Talk Radio. Greetings to all of you listening around the world and a warm welcome as we bring you another edition of the Answers for the Family radio show. I'm your host, Alan Cardoza, and if you're a regular listener, thank you for joining us once again. If this is your first time, please make yourself at home as we bring you Answers for the Family. Now, each week, this show will address issues such as locating a runaway teen, family crisis intervention, building self-esteem, dealing with addictions, lasting health, and so much more. And having over 30 years' experience working with families in crisis, I've been fortunate to meet and work with some of the top professionals in many of the helping fields and skilled authors who are working to make this world a better place for all of us. Now, you all can do me a big favor. Please check out some of our past shows at AnswersForTheFamily.com to hear some informative and entertaining guests, as well as dynamic co-hosts, discuss ways for you and your loved ones to become happier, healthier, and more at peace with whatever is going on in your life. I am also looking for some show ambassadors who will forward at least one of our shows to your social media group or to someone you know who can benefit from a particular subject. I want you to know that I truly appreciate it, and this is just another way that we can make a positive difference in the lives of others. Now, understand that a lot of the stuff that's going on out there in media, a lot of the negativity and stuff, the only way that we can get around that is to bring people to shows like this, bring people to, um, to websites like the Dare to Be Kind movement, um, Bring people to things like that. Introduce them to that. And if we can do that, we can pull away from and take our eyes and ears away from a lot of what uh, the divisiveness that's being put out there by uh, a lot of mainstream media. So if you want to make a difference, this is one of the ways that you can start. Now, um, the topic that we have today uh, is one that unfortunately many people uh, – you know, know somebody or, or have gone through. And, you know, this one is called, you know, returning to hope and joy from a shattered life. Now, before this show, um, as I do my usual research, which I do on, on all of the shows, I thought, what is the word we use to refer to someone who has lost a child? Well, I found that a wife who loses a husband is called a widow. A husband who loses a wife is called a widower. And a child who loses his parents is called an orphan. There is no word for a parent who loses a child. That's how awful the loss is. Now, that is a quote by Jay Nugenborn from An Orphan's Tale. The closest that I could come up with is a word called vilama, which means against a natural order. And which is, it's as in the Chinese saying that says the gray haired should never uh, bury those with black hair, as in our children, 
should not precede us in death. Our guest, Chris Vancouver, is a writer, educator, and a grieving mother who has found joy and light again through the practices of conscious and deliberate gratitude, unconditional acceptance, and connection with nature. That, along with master's degrees in counseling psychology and educational leadership, Chris writes with authority about grief and moving forward in what can be a very busy and stressful world. Now, a published author of fiction, Chris has published three romance novels. Um, More Than I Can Say, um, That One Small Omission, and The Phone Call. She used her pen name, Annabelle Rose. Now, Chris currently lives in Vermont with her husband and youngest son and a small herd of alpacas, a flock of chickens, and several hives of bees. She loves to spend time with her family, spending time in the garden, and spinning the alfalfa fiber, uh, the alpaca fiber, for yarn for knitting. Her book of grief, garlic, and gratitude, returning to hope and joy from a shattered life, Sam's love story, follows the first 30 months after her son, Sam's death, from an accidental prescription overdose. Chris shares her journey from the first crushing days to her eventually being able to find light, joy, and hope again. Chris, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It is a, it is truly an honor to be on your show. Well, um, I've got to tell you that I, I read a lot of books um, as part of this show. I read a lot anyway. And, and this is one of the most touching stories um, you know, I have ever read. And, uh, and some of the things that we're learning in society these days, that, that a lot of the things that are going on, you know, we're having you know, an, an opiate crisis. We're having a, you know, a, lot of, a lot of things that, uh, that are reaching the news. And what we're finding is a connection within the brain to trauma, you know, mm-hmm. that, that any of these things are, are bringing trauma into those of us that are still here. So the, the trauma that we're all going through. Uh, and so I, I felt reading your book that I think anybody that has gone through trauma, not necessarily having lost somebody, um, could certainly benefit from it. And I just want to thank you for for writing something that must have been uh, incredibly difficult to write. Thank you. It, it was incredibly difficult to write, but it also was a story we needed to tell because so many, you know, after Sam's death, when we went looking for resources, there really was very little out there about losing a child in this way. And we needed to bring the issue out of the shadows. Well, uh, I mean, in, you know, in, in the prologue, you know, you, you say your life is divided into two parts, you know, by a, a you know, a, a glaring clear line. The first part being anything before October 9th, 2013, and the other everything after. Now, this book obviously is about after, but let's go back and start by telling a little bit about yourself, your family, and specifically your son, Sam. Um, what was he like? Sam was, from the second he was born, he was an old soul, and 
he was light in love in a way that we knew as a family, but we didn't fully understand how much it impacted people outside of the family. He was the kid who, you know, as a little boy, you had to keep, you had to hold on to him at the county fair because he would wander off and start up a conversation with somebody he had never met before. And he just was so interested in everybody. And he loved his his siblings. He was the um, middle of our sons and had an older sister as well. He was the glue in all of their relationships. There's a large age range in our kids. And he was the one that they all connected to most closely prior to his death. He could make you laugh. He could make you insanely angry because he would push he would push you to think about your values and how you treated people. And he just, everything in life was an adventure and every person was worthy of love and getting to know them and, and truly valuing them. And that was just a gift. And we as parents, you know, he wasn't an easy child to parent because he questioned everything. But his ability to love and see people truly was a gift to us all. Wow. Um, you know, one of the things that I, you know, as I was going through the book and one of the thoughts that came to mind for me was, I don't think I could write the book. I don't, th- you know, I try to put myself in people's positions. Um, you know, so the, the, the journey, you know, and obviously for anybody that reads the book, you'll realize just how painful the, the journey has been for you. Um, you know, talked a little bit about, you know, why you wrote it, because there wasn't that much out there. But the, the story also, you know, you you go into you talk about social media in your life and how you use that and, and, and how that has has affected you. Um, you know, both prior to your loss and somehow become a major means to communicate after. Um, Explain a little bit about that, the kind of pros and cons of how that has helped or hurt you going through all of this. Sure. The, it really started um, the day, actually later the day, in the first 24 hours after Sam's death, I posted on Facebook that he had passed away. And it was done really, you know, the word of mouth had spread very, very quickly about his death, but it was to make sure that people, you know, his friends, family members that we hadn't thought to call that they would know. And, you know, that in and of itself was only meant as a sharing information and that was going to be it. But over the next, um, the next few days, even the outpouring of love and support that came through social media to us was just amazing. And then um, the day actually after Sam's service, there was this bizarre rainbow in the sky, a beautiful sunny fall day in Vermont. And there was this rainbow. And I wrote about the rainbow on social media that even in the, even in the midst of such absolutely unbearable pain in losing him. There was still that moment of beauty and that I could appreciate it. And I was thankful for that rainbow. And so I wrote about the rainbow 
And over the next weeks, I began writing every day and posting it on Facebook about what had happened that day for which I was grateful. And it was a combination of, for me, the grief was so profound and so deep. Um, Sam and I were very, very close to each other. And I felt like such a failure, you know, as someone with advanced degrees in counseling and education and that, and having him pass away in the way he did, I felt so guilty and like such a failure and was, I was destroying myself and writing about something good that happened each day made me stop and realize that there was still beauty and joy and light and hope in the world. It also was a way, I mean, which is not the case for a lot of families that experience the death of a child to an overdose. We had incredible community support because Sam was so loved. But it was also my writing on social media was to recognize the efforts people were putting in to support us. You know, my my secretary who got me soft Kleenex because I cried every single day at work. And at least if I had the soft kind, I didn't look like Rudolph. And, you know, all those sorts of things, it was a way to recognize what people had done. But when I did it, it made my heart lighter for a few minutes. And doing it every single day, let me find the light again in the world. Wow. Um, well, and that's, you know, it's, you know, I, I talk a lot about, you know, social media and things, you know, on the show uh, and some of the negative things. So I wanted to make sure that people understand that, that there are some incredibly positive things too, um, you know, that we're not always just trying to, to put that down. So, um, you know, again, thank you for sharing that because, you know, when it comes right down to it, there really are a lot of you know wonderful people out there that are going to um, you know share some some very heartfelt things, mm-hmm. and um, you know and so just because at times we talk about some of the negatives of the media or something like that, there's a lot of benefits, and so I'm glad that uh, that it was that it was a very positive situation for you. Um, we have a, a, a listener question that's coming in, and again, I want to thank those that. Uh, that either call in or that send in messages ahead of time. I know we have a lot of teachers and stuff that listen, so they're in class in the middle of the day. They send things in ahead of time. Sure. Um, so, but uh, this one, uh, this one reads, um, you know, it says, "I believe people are in denial of how much access young people have to drugs." One of my dearest friends lost her 21-year-old daughter to an opioid overdose. Uh, during her first years of college, she feels enormously guilty because she knew something was wrong, but was afraid to, to push the conversation. I applaud you for writing this book as regardless of the age or status, family, friends and parents should not feel afraid or embarrassed to talk about the warning signs that they observe uh, and ask uh, tough questions. Um, so and this is from Heather in Utah. Um so, Chris, what's your thoughts on that? And and I know we mentioned a little bit about the fact in the introduction, you know, that it was an accidental uh, overdose of prescription drugs. Um, there still are a lot of people that then become, 
you know, addicted because of something that started out as a prescription. So what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's absolutely unequivocally, I agree with Heather that, you know, there is still this stigma and there's still the, um, for many adults, it's very uncomfortable to bring up these conversations with their children. And, you know, we as a family, we had known, um, we had known Sam had had issues with primarily marijuana and drinking. Um, he had been arrested in college for DUI. We had gone through that process. He had also been diagnosed as um, having bipolar disorder. And at the time of his death, he actually had gone into treatment for the bipolar disorder. He was on medication for it and counseling and really um, more stable than we had seen him in quite a while. The piece in terms of sort of not talking about those things, um, and and I speak about this often in in events around New England, um, Sam died from putting a fentanyl pain patch in his mouth. It was a pain patch that he had stolen from my father. And my parents, Sam was staying at his grandparents that night just to, to hang out with them. They, you know, they were very, all very close to each other. My parents had made sure that everything in the house, including Advil, was locked up. Because, anything that they knew could be a problem because they didn't want to give him temptation. The, the fentanyl pain patch was the only thing not locked up because we had no knowledge at the time that, um, that this could be of concern. And what we found out in his death, you know, when the medical examiner that came to my parents' house, when she determined his cause of death, she made an offhanded comment that Sam, there had been three fentanyl pain patch deaths in our part of um, Vermont in the six weeks prior to his death. And those deaths had never made the news. I mean, in my grief and in my research skills and those things, I went back through everything I could find. And those deaths had never been discussed publicly as being from from fentanyl pain patches. And really, you know, we live in a community that has a very, very affluent um, private college nearby. And they have worked very hard at maintaining the facade that there are no substance abuse issues in the area. And, you know, for us, I can't say that it was, you know, that if Sam had reached a point in his substance abuse that he was putting a pain patch in his mouth, I'm not sure that if it hadn't happened that day, it wouldn't have happened another way. But my parents should not have to live with the guilt of not having locked that up because the community hid what had happened in those six weeks. And so I think that opening the conversation, talking about prescription medications, um, in Vermont, one of the big issues is um, when teenagers have their wisdom teeth removed and they're being prescribed huge amounts of opioids for the pain and not without a lot of supervision of how to use them, how to limit them, how to make sure they are disposed of properly afterwards. And those are all things we need to talk about openly as a society, because if we don't have the knowledge, if we're not open about it, we're going to lose even more incredible young people. 
You know, I'm, I'm so glad that you touched on that because with some of the families that we have worked with where we are transporting their young person to a specialized program for, for drug and alcohol issues, um, and very often I will talk to these parents and we'll be picking them up from a, a major city, you know, a large city, and they'll say, well, you know, as soon as he comes back, we're going to move to a small town where these pro- where they don't have these problems. Yeah, you know, and (laughs) thank you, because because they they need to hear it from somebody other than me, you know, Mm -hmm. that that unfortunately, um, you know, this is not something that is only an inner city problem or a large city problem. Um, This communication needs to go across the board. It needs to go to every community, not just the major cities. So thank you for sharing and it, it's also too. It's not, and and this is part of why, you know, while I wrote the book, it was a family decision. I would never have aired as much as I did about our family without the support of my husband, our parents, our children. But one of the things we kept hearing was, you know, there is a for Vermont, a city um, twenty miles south of us that has a higher rate of diversity. And you hear people openly talking about how, you know, well, that city has um, a drug issue because of minority populations in it. And, you know, no, this, this is a kid who came from a family, you know, parents married to each other, educated family, good medical care, good mental health care, all of those things. And we still had an addiction issue in our family. Yeah. So, no, yeah, again, it's, it's a message that, that really needs to be heard. Um, so we, we have another message that has come through, uh, and this one says, uh, I feel honored to work for an orthopedic physician in Washington, D.C., who closely monitors the use of pain medications for young athletes in his care. He speaks with coaches and parents frequently and, and schedules to see these young patients regularly to monitor their healing progress and ensure they are being pushed to return to the field or onto the court uh, to ensure that they are not, <laughs> the word not isn't there, so I'm adding it, uh, pushed to return to the field or onto the court prematurely. Perhaps we would not see kids with sports injuries get hooked on opioids uh, if we had more responsible doctors such as this, and that's from Virginia in D.C. Um, talk a little bit about this, some of the doctors that you spoke with. I, I totally agree with Virginia because I see it often as an educator. We see um, very frequently doctors that are prescribing, you know, rather than prescribing one or two opioid uh, pain um, pills, you know, literally five or under, they're prescribing 10, 15, 30, and then renewing the prescriptions. And there isn't the the close, um, you know, understanding, of course, if a child's over 18, they need to give permission for their parents to be involved in the conversation. But making sure that people understand the strength of these medications, their potential for um, causing addiction, and how how quickly it can happen and how easy it is to get them. 
And, you know, what we have heard from doctors is that, you know, they really want to control it, they want to limit it, but if they're getting calls from parents or from students or kids saying that, you know, their knees hurt or this hurts or this hurt, that they want to stop the pain because they feel it will help in the healing. It will if it's done properly. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's going to lead to a whole other set of problems. Yes, yes. So again, uh, I, I agree. And and Virginia, thanks so much for taking the time to to send that information in because we all need to work together in these areas. And that means, you know, educators, doctors, and parents together. Thank Absolutely. You. All right. We're we're going to take a break. Uh, so for everybody out there, please stay with us. And if you would like to to look at more of what Chris is doing, you can go to her website, which is authorfrancoeur.com, and that's A-U-T-H-O-R-K-F-R-A-N-C-O-E-U-R.com. And if you're driving, don't try to remember that or write that down. We will also have that on the Answers for the Family website. So please stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Answers for the Family. Founded over 30 years ago to meet the needs of families in crisis, Westshield has continually focused on resolving issues that negatively impact families and businesses. Our signature therapeutic transportation service helps to ensure that adolescents in crisis are safely transported to specialized schools, programs, and treatment centers with unsurpassed experience and success. We are supported by our full-service licensed investigation agency that has legally, professionally, and compassionately located hundreds of runaways and teens. We are experienced and qualified to help, offering solutions which may include referrals to our international network of top professionals in the fields of educational consulting, psychology, psychiatry, and investigations. Simply put, Westshield Adolescent Services and Westshield Investigations are the best solutions when your family is facing a personal crisis. Call 1-800-899-8585, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. That's 1-800-899-8585, or visit our website at westshield.com. Thank you. And we're back. You're listening to Answers for the Family. Our guest today is Chris Francure, and her book is Of Grief, Garlic, and Gratitude, Returning to Hope and Joy from a Shattered Life, Sam's Love Story. Uh, so, Chris, now, your, your life was that of a professional writer. So you were, you're writing romance novels, the, you know, with the, you know, Happily ever after stories. I mean, that's the way that in which romance novels are written, right? Everything Absolutely. ends in, in happy, happily ever after. Um, you know, but now in your personal life, obviously you're seeing that maybe that isn't always that way. Um, how are you now continuing to do things to where you're finding joy, um, you know, and trying to now get others to sort of see the same thing uh, as much and as fiercely as possible? It's a combination of, of approaches. I continue to write um, the happily ever after romances. But in writing the book about Sam, it was looking for uh, really a how-to guide for, 
you know, your life has completely, totally fallen apart. Here are some ways that might help you find your way back to, to light, to joy, to hope. And so I continue to, I write about the topics often, I speak about the topics, and trying to get the word out about both the, the concerns of addiction in general, but ways in which we can um, love everyone, support everyone, and how we interact with each other in moments of stress or grief or you know something devastating has happened. It's interesting. We also, um, as a family, we, you know, continue to work through our grief about losing Sam. And in the last year, um, my husband, Sam's dad, uh, was diagnosed with ALS, with Lou Gehrig's disease. And having to um, revisit, I've continued the practice of daily gratitude, you know, since um, publishing the book, but having to revisit the, if I truly believe that gratitude and unconditional love and connection to nature and, and you know, putting myself out there trying to make the world a better place, if I truly believe in that, that I need to do that even as my heart is breaking again as, you know, my husband struggles with this illness. And that has been a journey that... Um, I wasn't sure in those first few weeks after my husband's diagnosis that I would be able to find my way back to that sort of gratitude and hope. And I have found that it continues to work. <laughs> That's huge. That is huge. Um, now, how has how has writing you know the book you know of you know of grief and garlic changed? how you write your romance novels? What a great question. I think it has made me more aware of the rawness of human emotion. And I think as I write now, I think my depictions of emotion are more realistic. Okay. I have a new novel coming out in January, and as I as I review that one compared to my earlier novels, the emotion seems more authentic to me. the The writing of the of grief, garlic, and gratitude. I, I worked with two incredible editors, um, both of whom have worked with me extensively on fiction, and one is sweetness and light and hugs and puppy dogs. And the other tends to make me yell at least once in an interaction because she pushes me very hard. Together, they both held my hand and kicked me in the rear end when I needed it in writing this book. And I think the skills that they brought out in me as a writer in that process have carried through to my novels. Wow. Well, which that also now goes to the the concept of community, having people around us. Um, you know, when when we go through something, we all are going to go through some something. We all are going to lose someone. So having those people around you that you can trust, uh, that are going to be there for you. And in some cases, even as you said, giving you a little kick in the backside, 
um, giving us the things that we need to get through the things that that we're all going to go through at some point in time. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a blessing to have them. Now, in, in in the book, you also you, you talk about when you spoke with the funeral director um, who had asked about flowers um, and you said, that, you know, well, you. You, you said that we, you know, no, you know, we didn't want a donation of flowers because you said that that was not Sam, that he was right. more garlic, squash, hot peppers and Lego bricks. Um, is that how you came to to the title of the book? Just because it was it was how you felt about him? It was it. Sam, Sam found his career happiness in working on an organic farm. And he found the working in the dirt and seeing things grow, it gave him hope and peace in a way that we had never seen before. And garlic was the thing that he loved the most on the farm. And so we did decorate the meeting house with garlic that he had grown on the farm. And we continue, the farm then gave us the garlic And we were able to plant it on our property and continue to have garlic growing. It was garlic that Sam had touched and held and planted originally. And that garlic, the cycle of growing garlic each year gives us a chance. You know, it's planted right around the time of the anniversary of Sam's death. It's part now of the ritual of both celebrating Sam and grieving for him simultaneously and that garlic when it comes up in the spring there's that just rush of hope and you know the wonder of the growing things in the world and and so it's you know our grief our garlic and our sense of gratitude for our community and the love we share all of those are constantly interconnected. See, to me, that is so beautiful. And it also seems like it is a time in which, you know, you can you can have those those beautiful memories that you have of him. And and it sort of is is a a time in which, um, you know, you you know that it's coming so that you can prepare for it and and take it all in. So I think that's beautiful. Thank you. Now, one of the questions that I've asked a, a variety of people, um, they call it my magic wand question. Um, we talked, obviously, about the opioid crisis and such and, and different sides of communities that deal with it. Um, if you had a magic wand today and you could use it to to make a difference, um, what would you do with it? I would do several things with it. Um, Obviously, you know, the magic wand ultimately that I would use in my life is to bring Sam back. Recognizing that that's not possible. I would, I am very concerned as both a grieving parent and as an educator, the increasing stress levels and anxiety levels of the youth in the United States. And I would make changes to allow for more um, more mindfulness practice, more um, more outdoor time, more healthy play, um, unscripted activity time for kids, and more mental health services readily available for anybody that wanted them. 
those would be the things as I look at, um, you know, on this journey, we've met many, many young people um, suffering with addiction or in recovery and trying to stay clean each day. And when we talk, we hear about their, their early levels of stress, their early levels of anxiety and untreated mental health issues. And so that's what I would do if I had a magic wand. Well, and, and I, I love the fact that you brought up mental health. Uh, it is certainly an area that, that I believe that we need a lot more uh, assistance in. But I also wanted to, to tie in mental health and romance novels. <laughs> I, I, I started thinking about it as I was doing my research, and I thought, you know, let's go back to before television. So before television, what was the escape? What was the thing for, for, and especially more for, for younger women, but, but for anyone to, to have an escape where you can go somewhere and sort of live in a fantasy world without any danger. There's no danger in that. Uh, You know, there, 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 there's dangerous fantasy worlds that people go into. And unfortunately I, I tie some of those to drugs, but, the, but mm-hmm. this is just something that that a lot of people went to do and and that was that was their mental health so l- let's let's talk about that and and the benefits of mental health through escaping through a wonderful novel I think it's it's a wonderful way as you say to escape for a little bit and I think you know, the I write um, I write novels under the name of Annabelle Rose, and Annabelle Rose was my maternal grandmother. She was a um, a flapper dancer in um, in the twenties, very very strong, independent woman. But she was also the first person to ever hand me a romance novel, and my mother was horrified. My mother, from a feminist standpoint, thought this was just awful. But my grandmother gave it to me as something to read while I was hanging out at her house in the summer as a teenager. And it was that escape. I could read about, uh, the first one I ever read was about something that happened in Monaco. And I learned about Monaco. And it was Mm -hmm. wonderful. And I think that for any of us, whether it's a romance novel or um, a great spy story or whatever it is, it gives us a little break from our own brains. And that's a really important thing. We all occasionally need to get out of our own brains. No, I, and, and I agree. And I know that, that you know, we talked again a little bit in the introduction about the fact that, that you're doing a lot with nature. That's another way for us to get out of our brains as well. And, but I think the, the art of, of, of writing something good and then the value of that to those of us reading it is that we're also adding in our own imagination and, and if we're watching a movie, and I, I love movies, and if we're watching a movie or a television show, it's kind of the imagination of the director. It's not sure. really our imagination. And so um, and there are many books that I have read that I would then see the, the movie and I would think, well, no, I saw it this way. You know, you know I saw the protagonist to be, you know, more like this person. Um, so I and I just wanted to get that information out because I think there's so many people out there now that um, that, that picking up a book is not their first, uh, you know, the, their first thought when it comes to uh, I need to get away. I need to to kind of 
unwind or or kind of get away from whatever it is that's the stressors of life at that moment. And I want a lot of people to know that picking up a really good, well-written book and using that and go sit on the beach somewhere or go sit on a mountaintop or something, um, that to me is one of the greatest things that we can do. But I don't know that a lot of people are talking about it. I, I totally agree. And, and one of the things I often um, ask out on social media is anybody that has read one of my books to, if they can, send me a picture of where the book has gone. And I love to see where my books are being read. And it's interested me how many people, both who knew Sam or know us, and those who don't, that send me pictures of reading the book about Sam, and they're sitting on the top of a mountain. And mm-hmm. Sam loved to hike and climb mountains. And so it just it makes me laugh because it's, it's almost as if his spirit guided them to go sit on that mountain and read the book. Yeah. Well, and, and, and again, I think they can do that with whatever it is that they're going through. If you've gone through trauma, I think this is a great book for people to, to go up on that mountaintop or sit on that beach and read. Um, but you don't have to have just gone through trauma to also pick up, you know, a, a romance book, a good romance Absolutely. book and go and sit down and enjoy. And, and again, it, and it doesn't have to always be outdoors. Sometimes when it's raining, you can do the same thing indoors in front of sure. the fireplace. Um, but I think that that, you know, I, I talk a lot about, you know, t- turning off the news, turning off the things that are that are trying to gain access to your brain. Um, and you don't have to let them do that. You can choose to take it wherever you want. And sometimes there are much more relaxing and pleasant places to take it. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. So now uh, share a, a little bit about um just pick one of your your romance books. Share a little bit about that for everybody, so that they can kind of understand where that's where that might take them. Sure. Um, my I have a new one coming out in January, but the one that I would mention is uh, More Than I Can Say, which came out about a year and a half ago. And um, the main character is a woman named Georgiana who is a, um, an educator in Vermont, and she has a 2,000-pound pet bull who lives with her on her little farm, and um, she ends up making some poor choices on a business trip and um, getting involved rather quickly with her new boss. And then that relationship, they, they decide they can't have a romantic relationship and then we have to see where they go over the next year with that. And uh, it's really, it's a story about, you know, how we deal with our past, how we deal with um, untreated trauma, and how we can have fun and laughter and find love in the strangest places. Well, I'm intrigued already. <laughs> 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 so, um, well, Chris, I just got to tell you, I, I really want to kind of acknowledge you for for writing something that, as I told, as I said earlier, I, I don't know that I could have in the same situation. Um, 
uh, I think that you know we're we're in a time uh, right now to where um, it's a book that a lot of us you know really should read. Um, and you know, again, I just really want to thank you for taking the time and and writing it. I want to thank you for coming on the show. And for anybody out there, um, you know, if you, you know, if you would like to be able to either get the book or you'd like to be able to just go to the website again, uh, you can go to it's, you know, author K. Francoeur. Uh, and again, the spelling will be on on the answers for the family site. Um, but again, just I really just want to thank you, Chris. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to join you. And, you know, to your listeners, I appreciate their time as well. It's an uncomfortable topic, and I really appreciate their taking their time to listen. You know, and, and actually, as you were saying that, it, it dawned on me, I mean, as an educator, um, and, and what would you say to the teachers out there? Uh, specifically, knowing that I know that we have a lot of teachers because a lot of them have have either called in or emailed or texted us or whatever. What would you say to them uh, in how they can uh, help when they're dealing with a student that may have gone through or that they can see has gone through something and they're not sure what it is? Keeping that open heart, that open the. A lot of times in our lives, we don't need someone to fix something for us. We just need them to sit with us, to hold our hand, to give us a hug, to just be in silence with us. And I think for us as educators, we always want to fix things for our students. And sometimes the greatest gift we can give is just playing that unconditional acceptance and love and letting the student guide us in what they need. And and I use the example a lot. Our youngest son who, you know, was so very close to Sam, he was very clear with us that he did not want his he has went to an incredible school, that he did not want them fussing over him, that it made him uncomfortable. What he needed was just at times a quiet place where he could go and just sit for a few minutes and not have to talk to anyone. And there was a teacher who gave him that space to do that. And that was a gift that allowed him space and time to heal in his own way. And I think that's what we need to do as educators is listen to both the verbal and the nonverbal communication we're getting and honor it and just unconditionally accept our students. Well, that was beautiful. And I think there's probably a lot of people out there. I'm one of them that feels like you were talking directly to me. <laughs> Good. <laughs> as, as, as someone who's, whose kids have said many times, dad, you don't have to fix everything. Yep. So, um, yes, that was, that was perfect. And again, thank you so much. Thank you. And, and to your readers, I hope they'll join, you know, check out my blog and join us on this journey. All right. Thank you. And for, thank you for everybody out there. Please be sure to put us on your calendar and tune in next Monday when we will be joined by Dr. Kelly Harding to discuss the rabbit effect. Uh, live longer, happier, and healthier with the groundbreaking science of kindness. And please visit our archives of past shows at AnswersForTheFamily.com, or you can subscribe to the show, which is better yet. 
You can do it through iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Vimeo, Spreaker, and iHeartRadio. If you like what you hear, please leave a review. It'll help us reach more people, and we greatly appreciate it. The next time you're on Facebook or Twitter, please remember to stop by our page, check out some of our latest posts, and if you like them, please like us and continue to spread the word. Now, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about something that is key to, to this particular show, um, and that is um, there is a book out there, another book, um, that if anybody is, is going through something that you might want to check out, and this one is called um, Tirabar and the Legend of the Teardrop Tree. So um, that would be another one because what it, what it talks about, it also talks about dealing with grief, but there's also a, a tree uh, that also makes a nice gift. And on the little box that the tree is on, it says, let your sorrow fall on me. I'll cry for you. I'm a teardrop tree. And that is on a little trinket box. So if you want more information on that, you can go to teardroptree.com. So for everybody out there, please be good human beings. Have a wonderful week and be with us again next week on Answers for the Family. You're listening to Answers for the Family with Alan Cardoza, right here on L.A. Talk Radio.